worst bestsellers, where we read about one woman's book deal so you don't have to. I'm Renata. And I'm Kate. And for this episode, we read Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert. Joining us to discuss the memoir that inspired Julia Roberts to eat spaghetti is Meredith Goldstein, author of books including Can't Help Myself, and the host of the Boston Globe's Love Letters column and podcast. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for returning. Yes. It's always good to talk with you, Meredith. And to have an excuse to eat pizza and watch movies with you. Yes. Uh, what a delicious, literally and figuratively treat to be able to see the Pray Love movie with both of you before recording this. Yeah, we we ate and we loved. Um, and I don't know about prayed, but... We didn't, but I will say, because I feel like I should disclose this at the start of the episode, that I am recording this while being a little under the weather and perhaps a little bit on cold medication. And, you know, we watched that movie and then I got sick and did this reading. And I noticed that in the phases of my head cold journey, I was really hungry. And then I was, you know, sort of bargaining with the world to get better. And then when I started to feel better, I felt a lot of love. So I feel like I <laughs> you did it wearing wearing my pajamas in my, you know, apartment for the last week have really, you know, basically d- done the same thing that she did in this book. <laughs> Let's see. Before we get too deep into this, let me say this was our Patreon choice episode. Every year we let our Patreon patrons vote on a book for us to read. And this is what they chose. And, you know, honestly, um, I'm going to thankfully pray and love about I don't pray to the patrons. I pray for the patrons, I guess. I'm thankful for them. I love them. And I'm very thankful that they picked this because it. Ooh, it was so much less painful to read than last year's yes. choice. I, I honestly, like, and this is probably not what the people who put it on the list want to hear. I very much enjoyed this book. No, I know. I'm a little nervous because I do feel like everybody wants us to, like, dunk on it. But my confession is I think I've already been, like, Gilbert-pilled because a few years ago... God, it must have been 2018. I went to a library conference and I was sharing a hotel room with my boss. Not my not my boy boss, but one of my girl bosses. And <laughs> yeah. And she was like, hashtag girl boss. Um and Elizabeth Gilbert was one of the keynote speakers, and she was talking about her at the time her latest book, Big Magic. And it was at 8 a.m. And in my head, I was like, oh something called big magic at 8am like I might just go to breakfast with one of my librarian friends but instead my girl boss was like well we're going to Elizabeth Gilbert at 8 and I didn't want to be like oh no I'd rather like skip out on this conference that the library is paying me to go I was like yeah no of course uh so I like slunk into big Gilbert big Gilbert god (laughs) (laughs) to average size Gilbert's big magic and I was just prepared to like zone out and like not be in a good mood. And then um, I just was like, oh, my God, big magic is real. Like, this is incredible. She's amazing. I love her. I still haven't read big magic, but it just like she is a great speaker. And like she has this great way. And and I see it in the book, too, of taking these ideas that maybe seem a little like loopy and just like either you buy in or you see where she's coming from or even if you're not fully like, oh, yeah, like definitely all of this is correct. You're like, no, I, I get it. Yeah, the things, the sum total of things that I knew about Elizabeth Gilbert 
prior to reading this was a she has been a guest bird on Mabim Bam, my brother, my brother and me, the McElroy's brothers advice, quote unquote, podcast um, twice. And I found her to be very charming. And I was aware that she did a different podcast on the network that they're on about creativity. And I noticed like the headlines when she divorced her husband to have a relationship with her female best friend who was dying of cancer that kind of like made waves. And I remember that happening because we just get in a little alert anytime a new gay person pops up on the radar, Mm. you know, so that was exciting queer person, I should say, but yeah, that was all I knew. And now like, I, I might read her other books. I don't know. (laughs) And I gotta say, like I have, I bought Eat, Pray, Love when it came out. And I think I flipped through it a bit. I think I read some of the beginning and that was what was familiar to me. But then it became such a ubiquitous narrative that I know over the years I have said, well, you know, this person's doing their Eat, Pray, Love thing. I mean, I've constantly referenced it. And yet I had to admit to myself when you two asked about this that I had not read it cover to cover. And I actually didn't know a ton of, about this the specifics. So all that this book really did. I mean, yes, I wanted to go in with a certain lens, but I, it made me want to read her novels. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And I think all of us had some preconceived notions about Eat, Pray, Love, a little bit negative. And so I'm really glad that we all watched the movie together. And I think we're going to try not to talk so much about the movie because we are a book podcast, but I do think that a lot of the negative things about it that are sort of seeped into the culture came from the movie and not from the book. And the movie is worse than the book, makes a lot of changes that just like present her journey in a worse light. And it's just, it's just worse than the book. Yeah, I definitely felt like because we watched the movie and just due to like my life and busyness, I hadn't really started the book I think when we yeah I hadn't started it yet when we watched the movie so all I had was the preconceived notions of like cultural osmosis of white ladies being obsessed with this book in like the mid to late aughts to go on and it was funny watching the movie with Renata because she was I think halfway through Prey when we were watching it and things would come up and we'd react badly to it. And she'd be like, yeah, that's not actually what happened. Like what happened was a much more sympathetic or, you know, a much more logical thing or, you know, that is actually explained in the book better so that it doesn't seem as like kind of weird and gross as it does in the movie. And I, I do feel like the movie was what my cultural osmosisness understanding of the book was. And the book itself was very different. Yeah. I want to start with a little preempt start. We've started the podcast like seven times so far. I want to continue the podcast by um, <laughs> reading a little early dramatic reading, I guess, from the introduction to this was like the 10th anniversary edition. And so she had a new little forward for it that sort of addresses some of the hubbub. And so here's a couple quotes from that. I have never presented my eat, pray, love journey as a prescription for other people's lives. Nobody has to get divorced and move to India just because I did. That was my path. It does not have to be yours. As the great Cheryl Strait has put it, 
my truth is not a condemnation of yours. What I will say to people, however, is this. Don't do what I did. Ask what I asked. And then another short excerpt from later in the and forward. People sometimes make fun of this book. Sometimes I make fun of it. Sincere as she was, its author is terribly earnest and occasionally grandiose. But let's forget for a moment about who wrote E. Pray Love, and let's remember who read it. Millions and millions of women all over the world who used it as a doorway through which they stepped into an expanded sense of their own worth, their own possibilities, their own destinies. They used this story as a permission slip to ask themselves their own questions, often for the first time in their lives. And you cannot make fun of that because that's important. So first of all, Liz, thank you for cutting us off at the premise of our podcast. <laughs> Can't make fun of that because it's rude to the other ladies. Um, but I do, I do genuinely think these are good points. And I think besides being from the movie, I think a lot, a lot of the, you know, condemnation, making fun of this book and the movie is like, oh, she's so privileged. Like she's so privileged. She gets to do this. And she doesn't understand that not everyone can just like quit their job for a year and go and move to Italy and India. And, you know, she's so privileged. She doesn't understand that. And like, first of all, the movie doesn't make it clear that like she had been a writer. She got a book deal. Like, yes, she was privileged and lucky to get the deal to go and like have this book money to live off for a year while she went and like traveled and got to write about it. But like, she was a travel writer before that. So it, it makes sense. Like she didn't, it wasn't just like, Oh, I won the lottery and I got this. Like this was a career that she'd been working on. And like, yeah, she still was lucky to get to do it, but that's where the money came from and that's sort of how things can work like i'm not saying like every writer is gonna get this book deal or whatever and especially not now but maybe in 2003 it was a slightly better publishing world and then the other thing i want to say is that i do feel like there is a certain tendency of some people to just sort of like use privilege as like a weaponized concept of like well she's privileged so like we don't have to listen to her and it's like you can point out that she has privilege but still listen to the other stuff that she says like that doesn't invalidate everything else she has to say and like the whole concept of privilege is that almost everybody has some kinds of privilege you know like yes she has like white privilege and you know I think she actually was kind of from a working class background but she has some class privilege like da 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 but like at the same time you know, she's a woman and she's had some, what's the opposite of privilege? Penalties. I don't know. She's had some penalties. Because <laughs> of that. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like a black man can face racism, but also have male privilege. Like, I feel like so much of it is just like, Liz Gilbert is privileged. So therefore the end, it's bad. And it's like, I don't, that's not actually how it works though. I, I how- One thing that, that you're saying that I think is important to say is that I think when I, to read or reread this in the way that I did, in a in a really cover to cover way, I was worried about it being cringy in certain ways that dealt with you know race privilege and class privilege and you know showing up as an American to different places. But I will absolutely confess that the the way in which I might have eye rolled the concept of this book ten years ago or fifteen years ago was a little bit more about some sort of internalized misogyny. I would group it into a a bunch of books that were like, well, you know, it's good, even though it's about a woman finding herself. And I might not have 
you know, when this book came out, fully understood or had the language to figure out that some of this was eye rolling myself and eye rolling everyone else. I was really eye rolling myself. So I think that it has grown into a place where I'm like, God, I hope this holds up and that, that, you know, this works. But I think that is a, a concern that developed for me probably over the last decade, if I'm truly being honest with myself. So I do wonder if some of the original eye rolling was also just, it's an incredibly popular book by a woman speaking to many women. It also made itself vulnerable in that way. Yeah. I think too, like, and something that she says like right there is like that it's clear in the book itself in a way that the movie does make it seem otherwise that like, she wasn't like, I'm going to write an advice book about what you should do when you are a woman who is divorced and trying to find herself. Like, she was in a bad place. She had these dreams of doing this thing that she had wanted to do for a long time. And she was able to talk her way into a book deal to do it, which is a privilege. But it's not like she was saying like, oh, yeah, like, it was so easy. Like, everyone should do this. Like, the book itself is about her personal journey going to three places that to her personally had meaning mm -hmm. to try and find like this sense of balance in her life based on her experiences. Like at no point does she hold herself up as like, this is the guide to enlightenment doing these things. Like this is a book about her personal way that she decided to tackle a lot of upheaval and bad times in her life and not as like, this is the cure all, but as I have the time now and the energy and the ability, and now I've gotten the money that I can do this and maybe it will help me kind of settle myself because I've lost myself in relationships. Yeah. I do think the title is bad. I think maybe part of the title is part of why people think this is supposed to be prescriptive because it sounds like it's like a command, like eat, pray love and like maybe it should have been called like eight prayed loved but <laughs> but that's bad also I don't know so that I don't it would know. have taken off as much with that yeah. title but I, but I do appreciate well <laughs> I feel like you're also bearing the lead a little bit of the news about her as a writer which is that while we were watching this movie for some of us before reading the book cover to cover I learned that she is also technically responsible for another uh adaptation of something she wrote that I think is quite meaningful and important, which is Coyote Ugly. Yes. 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 Uh, would, would you explain, one of you explain this? Because this is like one of those, if you didn't know, you're going to like lose your mind a little bit. Yeah. So she met her first husband, the one who she divorces or, or has just recently divorced at the start of this book while working at Coyote Ugly. And while working at Coyote Ugly, she wrote an article about it. And that article was the inspiration for the movie Coyote Ugly. Which means that she has really just been a force in my life for longer than I knew. <laughs> taught me to not fight the moonlight, but I can't fight the moonlight. And <laughs> we're, we're loving this. I mean, it, and it, we, we can get into it, but I, I think what you say about privilege is, is really important in this. And at no point does she, she doesn't use the language that I think somebody would use now to address those privileges, but, but it is, a, it is addressed to some extent. I yeah. think uh, yeah. like she knows what she looks like. She does. And, it, you know, we've developed a way of talking about this, that it's actually sort of charming to have her just sort of organically describe herself as like, you know, a tall blonde person is looking like a flamingo in these places and sort of sticking out in the ways in which she stuck out, but also it not being a hindrance for her. I don't know, it felt very 
it did feel somewhat self-aware more than I expected it to feel in 2022. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she throughout, she is very aware that she is a white lady, especially in the prey and the love sections of the book, that she is a white American and that because she is a white American, like there are certain things that she can do and get away with that she wouldn't be able to otherwise, that she is able to enter these places in a way that is very different from the people who are living there. You know, it's not, yeah i think i think that she addresses it throughout just like she addresses you know she's very clear throughout the book that she is able to go on this trip because she got this book deal it's not something that she would have been able to do otherwise and you know i i think that the movie too not to keep comparing it to the movie but in the movie like it does very much feel like she was like i'm gonna go on this trip to travel because i've always wanted to travel and i'm just gonna do it and it's gonna be great and like there there was a lot more thought and research put into this than the movie makes it seem. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't want to be like, I hated the movie. The movie is terrible. Like I can get why the movie was popular. Like I, you know, I like travel books. I like travel movies. I like to travel. There's a lot of like beautiful shots of, of Italy and India and Indonesia. Like, aesthetically it's like oh this is like nice to look at but (laughs) if you like think about it like it just doesn't really hold up to any kind of examination for most of it yeah i will will say that i noticed this in wild that and and i think wild is a much um more meaningful adaptation to me at least but one thing i noticed about both of them is that they both really lean on some of the best sentences in memoirs. Yes. Some of the, it was interesting to really read this again after the movie because I thought, wow, you know, they did a beautiful job knowing what was important. And perhaps in the movie, they didn't get to the heart of why it was important and showing you everything, but they did, they did know a sentence when they read it of like, wow. Yeah. And I don't want to jump ahead, but particularly the the scene on the roof with the husband, I don't know how we're going to do this sort of plot wise getting through it, but to read that was so meaningful and I understand why they wanted to include it in the movie, but um, it's something you, you sort of have to read. Well, I mean, plot wise. So yeah, we, we start with like a little pre eat kind of introduction where she talks about like how her, how her marriage had been and how she realized like she needed a divorce, but it was so hard for her to, ask for that and to realize that you know this marriage that she wanted wasn't working anymore and like you know to realize that she didn't want that and so that and that she was like really depressed and really doing badly at the point that she did get this book deal yeah and she had so she had divorced her husband and fallen immediately into another relationship she she had separated from her husband and immediately fallen into another relationship because her husband right. essentially for two years refused to divorce her. He refused to even at first speak with her about the concept of divorce, refused to sign the papers, refused. There was a point where, and this is kind of how it ends up happening in the end, where she said, you can take literally everything, just sign the paper. And he said no. 
So it was very emotionally taxing for her. She was in this other brand new relationship with a younger guy who she had immediately thrown herself into to deal with the stress of the divorce. But then very quickly, like the bloom fell off that rose because they were very different people. And she was very needy and he was turned off by her neediness. So whenever she got needy, he would pull away and that would just upset her more. And it was just a terrible cycle and it wasn't working. And she, you know, in this period of time, you know, ended up deciding she was going to move out of her new boyfriend's house. She was going to get her own apartment and she was going to get hobbies for herself. And one of them was learning Italian. And through her exposure to the new boyfriend, she had, and I hate it the way they did this in the movie. Mm -hmm. He had introduced her to the guru that he studied under and like meditated under and she got really into the practice like she became really because she describes herself as like always being kind of spiritual and religious without actually having a religion and this meditation practice under this guru was exactly what she needed and she also got very into it and like would go to retreats and she like learned all of the mantras and everything in sanskrit and you know was very focused on like using meditation and spirituality and praying as a part of her like finding and identifying herself and previous to her divorce she had gone to indonesia on an assignment or in a workshop that she was covering for her job as a magazine writer. And she had seen a medicine man in Bali who had made this prediction, a bunch of predictions about her, which, you know, ended up being like vaguely true. Uh, And one of them was that she was going to come back to Bali and be friends with him. And he was going to practice his English with her. And so she, once she separated herself from the new boyfriend, she was kind of like, all right, well, I have my meditation. I have, you know, my Italian classes. Like what I really want to do is learn who I am myself, like outside of relationships. I really need to like dig down and figure out who Liz Gilbert is. And so she pitched the idea of going to these three places to her publishing editor her editor and they said yeah like we would fund you we would like give you an advance so that you could go and live and do this for a year travel to each place for four months and you know write about your experiences and you know your process of finding yourself so that's what she decides to do by the way i went and read a bunch of reviews and articles and stuff because i had a sense that people wanted us to like dunk on this book like I said and I knew that we all kind of liked it so I wanted to read like what the other criticisms were so I was like okay what are the points that I'm missing or what do I need to kind of like evaluate and again I think a lot of these are more about the movie than about the book like I said a lot of them are just like she's privileged and here's here's a quote from a review of the movie Italy, India, Indonesia. I wondered why she was drawn to those three countries. Is it because they all start with I? I, I, and I. Not inappropriate for a film that is ultimately about I, me, and myself. And the in the context, I'll link to it, but they're like dunking on her and calling her selfish. But in the book, she mentions like, oh, these countries all start with I. That's kind of funny. Maybe it's a sign. Maybe like, you know, and I am exploring myself. And like... Uh- <laughs> Is it selfish to want to, like, 
learn about yourself and to go and have these experiences. Like, I guess on some level, technically, literally, yes, but I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's bad to take some time to, like, be selfish and, like, get your configure yourself or whatever. Yes. And I also think, too, and, like, this, again, it's done really – I just hate the way the whole India portion is done in the movie – in the yes. movie, the India portion makes it seem like she saw the picture of the guru on her boyfriend's table and then decided that like what's like one meditation class with him and then was like, yeah, like I'm going to go study at her ashram in India like because I think it would be cool. Whereas in and then shows up and like doesn't know anything and is like out of her depth and like doesn't know any of the prayers and it's so funny because this white lady is here and she doesn't whereas like in the book she's been a devotee of this woman for a long time and has like studied at her other ashrams in the u.s and Mm -hmm. like knows all the prayers and is very serious about this study and you have to go through this whole rigorous application process to even be considered to come and study there like it's not like you can just be like i'm a white lady with a book deal please let me in although not that like i'm sure her being a white lady with a book deal maybe was a couple points in her favor but also like she had to prove that she was a devotee of this guru that she you know like was coming here for real spiritual reasons and it just that annoyed me it just made her come off so bad in the movie Mm -hmm. i i mean i really one of the things i loved about this book based on my day job as an advice columnist is like how how it deals with one of the questions she's dealing with of like, why can't I be in a successful relationship? And the fact fact that she frames it that way, a success, failure, that kind of thing. And not well done in the movie, but definitely in the book, you, you do see that she really um, latches on to this through this second love we learn about, you know, she's got her husband with the bad divorce that we don't get to hear a lot about in the book because she's trying to create boundaries with the reader and respect But then we know that, um, you know, this character, David, she falls deeply in love with and perhaps wants too much. And and that does make him pull away. And I began as a reader to ask myself, okay, is she into this this meditation and chanting and, and this practice because she is spiritual and this is what she wants? Or is it part of adopting the lifestyle of this love? Because she very much confesses that she will lose herself in someone else. And to me, to read about the journey and how she eventually was able to, you know, whether it was intentional or not, it became hers. And whereas I started that part of the book, she can't stop talking about David, right? And she, mm-hmm. you know, this this character, wait, I'm already forgetting his name, from Texas. Oh, Richard. Richard from Texas, you know, basically calls her on it in the book. Whenever she's like zoning out and staring off into space, he says, how's David, right? And mm-hmm. anybody who's been through that kind of breakup where you can't stop thinking about someone knows that, that that happens. And at some point during that part of the book, I forgot that David existed. And I think it's probably at the point where it became about her journey and where it wasn't as attached to him. So I thought that was really interesting too. Like, I don't think the movie does a great job of framing her interest. Whereas for me, for the book, I was really eager to learn, can this be something that is hers or is it something that she has, does it represent a piece of her history in this relationship? And I will just say that I absolutely loved, I know the people who wanted us to have a certain opinion about this are going to be so sad, but you know, she's got this monumental divorce from a, a, a long relationship, a marriage 
And yet most of her feelings are about a relationship that was not as long and seemingly sort of reboundy. And I love that as she becomes sort of more aware of herself and what she's doing, she then falls back to thinking about this marriage. And it's just, to me, like, I love a breakup book. I love a breakup song. And that's so much of what this is. I was actually thinking about my sister who years ago dated a guy from Israel. He was in New York and he eventually dumped her. And she was like, I need to go to Israel right now. And she did. She only went for about a month. And I really think she wanted to, I think she had fallen in love with someone from a place. And I think she wanted to go there to find him again. And she had some incredible hummus and came back essentially. But, but I, it was such a breakup action. And I remember probably dismissing it as an eat, pray, love moment at the time. (laughs) But, Mm -hmm. um, this idea that I wondered if it was fully breakup related for her to go to that specific place. I don't know. And then it, it, to me, it felt like it wasn't, I don't know how you pulled it off in a movie. I was surprised she was able to pull off writing about meditation and what you think about and what you tell yourself. And when it doesn't work, I, I was shocked at how she was able to execute that because it's like a lot of intangible stuff. You, you went from thinking of your sister as eat, pray, love, parentheses, derogatory to eat, pray, love, parentheses, congratulatory. Congratulatory. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my, my sister had to go all the way to Israel to be like, wait, I don't really want to be in Israel right now. And also that guy broke up with me. Screw him. But like, you know, but it is like, sometimes it's like, how close can we get to that person who doesn't want to be with us? Yes. I Liz Gilbert is a messy bitch. And I respected that. I This book is so honest to me i mean i guess i don't truly know but she is so willing to say things that are unflattering to herself that that it makes you believe like every you know positive step that she takes along the way like this is not a book that's like look how great i am i ate and prayed in love this is a book that's like i was going through it and here's how i got through it and here we are like and i i like that so much by the way i we all clearly want to talk about prey. Let, let's talk about let's talk let's about get to eat. eat. Let's do eat real quick. Yeah. Um, because I honestly like this was maybe my favorite part of the book. I and which is maybe because if you were to put in front of me eat, pray, and love as three choices, it might be where I, I end up. You know, she so she goes to, to Italy, she gets herself like a little flat to stay in for the four months she's gonna be there. She enrolls herself in Italian classes and she decides that like this part of her or has already decided this part of her trip is going to be about pleasure. She's going to remain celibate for her time in Italy, but she is going to indulge herself in as much of the, you know, incredible Italian food and scenery as she wants and really mm-hmm. just like lean into it. And she I mean, first of all, it's just wonderful to read a book where a woman is describing her relationship with food with such joy. Mm-hmm. There are a couple, It does towards the end, she does get into, like, weight a little bit. And it's, you know, again, it's one of those things where, like, for 2003, it was probably progressive. Mm-hmm. But now I'm kind of like, oh. You know, she's not fat phobic, but her view of her own body is kind of like, oh, I've gained weight and people will probably think that's bad and gross, but like, I feel good about myself. By the way, so like she had lost weight before going to Italy because she was so depressed that she just like wasn't eating. 
And then she was like, I gained all this weight. But actually, like, when you consider where I used to be before I lost the weight, I was really, like, net up about eight pounds. And it's like, okay, that's, like, not very much. That's nothing. That's Uh, a heavy meal, Liz. But, you know, she had to buy bigger pants. And it was a whole thing for her. But that, yeah, that the actual weight isn't a very big part of it. It is very, like, loving descriptions of the food and, like, the joy that she took in feeding herself. Yeah, and it's just, all the food sounded so good. (laughs) You know, and the relationships that she has while she's there, like, the friendships, the people she meets, like, the, the loving way in which she describes all of the people in Italy who she becomes friends with and the things they do together, it just felt like such a joyous time in her life to like having come from this misery and this like heavy depression where she, she doesn't necessarily say this in so many words, but it's pretty clear that at some point during the divorce and her breakup from the care, the boyfriend she calls David, uh, she was suicidal mm-hmm. and like to see her kind of start to pull away from this misery and just enjoy other people and food and herself was just it was a very joyous section and also I do think that maybe my favorite thing that happened in the book was she describes at one point her one of her uh one of her sisters or her only sister I think her only sister her only sister comes to visit her for a period of time while she's there and has all of these things that she wants to do while she's there and Liz basically admits she has not done anything like she has not gone to museums she has not gone to like look at art really like she just admires the buildings and the scenery and the people and the food and her sister wants to look at these old churches and describing Maybe I'm going to change my dramatic reading to this because it really was maybe my favorite part of the book. Describing the relationship that her sister has with knowledge Mm. versus the relationship that she herself has had with the spirituality that is burgeoning in her was just really beautiful. And the relationship between these women just felt so warm. Oh, it was good. Yeah, because she, Liz talks about how, like, she wasn't, none of her family was religious. They weren't raised with any religion. And so she talks about, this actually maybe is a different part, but it really struck me when her sister was describing a family that she knew who had suffered a tragedy. And Liz was like, wow, that family needs grace. And her sister was like, Liz, that family needs casseroles. And she described like mobilizing the neighborhood and setting up a meal train, like taking care of the family. And Liz was like, but I didn't know how my sister didn't understand that that was grace. And that just like, uh, just like really moved me. She's also the sister is, you know, she says, Liz says in the book, you'd think that Liz would be the one who would want marriage and kids and her sister would be you know, p- perhaps not that personality, but in fact, it worked the other way. But, uh, you know, that part where she introduces her sister, I kept thinking, like, I-, I fully understand this sister. You know, I am not married with kids, but I understand that we have this agenda and this is the knowledge and this is the casserole. And it, it-, it sort of gives you another point of view character about there. Are- there are many moments in the in the book where I thought, wow, I wonder what her friends at home were saying. And I wonder whether they were eye rolling this as they received updates, whether they you know, were shocked at, at what she saw. And I, I, I think it's really just like, a, if I'm her sister, what a, what a tribute to her when you read that, you know? Yeah. 
we should talk a little bit about uh, one part that all of us mentioned not especially loving in the eat section though is when she talks about medication for depression and how she she didn't want to take it but it was clear that she really needed it and she is you know again she is like honest and said like this got me through a hard time and i'm grateful that i took it but then when i got to italy it felt stupid to be like on antidepressants in italy and she she here's one of the parts where she is more prescriptive than anything else and she's like and so like i understand that prozac and medication can be helpful but i really think that everyone should you know only do it in conjunction with therapy and like i think a lot of americans are over medicated and like really think about whether or not you need to be on medication and it's it's not strictly anti-medication but it's a little like well did you really need to like take time out of your italian journey to like talk about this and she yeah. makes against herself. She says that, isn't it like a doctor says to her, like, if you had a kidney problem, you'd get kidney medication. What makes this different? And she, yet she doesn't understand. She doesn't seem to understand that point. I, that's a point where I wonder what she would say now about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it just like, it, it felt very, you know, as a person who takes multiple medications daily um, in order to function and not because she like literally says that the the time she she resisted medication resisted it and then there was one night where she was 100% sure that she was going to go out and kill herself and she finally like asked for help from someone and was able to like get a psychiatrist who was able to like see her very quickly and you know was put on medication and hated that she had to do it but like was proud of herself for asking for help and, and it just I didn't it was bad I felt like it it was bad vibes she she talks to her doctor about like don't you can't put me on medication because I'm a writer and I need my creativity and like if my my brain gets different then I won't be able to create anymore mm-hmm. and the counterpoint that she gives is that her doctor says something to her along the lines of if you don't do something about this like you will die of it mm-hmm. but in reality if you're on a good and I know fucking no one listening to this podcast needs to have me, <laughs> a person with a BA in creative writing, tell them about how psychiatric medications work. But if you're on a good antidepressant or a good anxiety medication or like a good ADHD medication, it doesn't change the way you're like, it doesn't take zap your ideas and like your feelings and your creativity away. It helps you zero in on those things and gives you the space mentally to really luxuriate in them. If you are on a medication that is stopping you from being creative, you need to talk to your prescriber because that is not a good medication for you. You know, one thing we're not like, I, I think we read the same introduction. It mentions in the introduction how in rereading it, she realizes how young she was when she wrote this book. In, yeah. in the same thing. She talks about herself as being old, an old divorced woman, right? A bunch. And you find out what she's like 34 or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, as someone who is very much brought to you by Celexa and <laughs> work deeply effectively, I, I think that, you know, she also paints a, a portrait of herself as someone who is very concerned with excelling and doing right. And, and even, um, you know, she, she wants to love, right. She wants, and I, I think we, we don't leave her having finished that journey. You know, this book is still probably a part of her life where 
she holds herself up to certain, you know, standards of of winning and and doing and getting chanting right, getting meditation right. And yeah. that actually felt deeply relatable to me. And all of that is fine, except for the fact that when she gets into that conversation about antidepressant, it's really the only part where she is prescriptive. And it's, it's the part that falls flat for me because she doesn't know yet, right? And she probably yeah. isn't self I, I saw old versions of myself in that of like, I think when I first got on medication, I was like, I saw it as some sort of failure to figure it out. And I think one of the themes in this book is when you talk about privilege is she's saying, I'm married, I have nice furniture, I have all these things that make me aspirational to so many people, like people want this, and yet I'm unhappy, so I am bad. And she gets pretty far in self-forgiveness for not wanting these things that other people say she should want, but she that's a moment where her lack of generosity for herself just comes off as being judgmental of actual good like care for yourself. Yeah. So that I mean, that was clearly we all took issue with that. And you know, I think you're right that it's possible that she's got different opinions now. And obviously, like I did, like this book did fucking slap. So despite this, I was able to kind of push past it and keep going. Yeah, well, and it really only is like, by the way, what is it called? This book is divided into 109 chapters, which is a lot of chapters. And it's so there's 36 in each section and it's because of i'm going to look up what it's called because i don't remember okay uh, yeah it's called the japa mala which is like a like a rosary but a hindu indian one actually they've been used in india for centuries to assist about hindus and buddhists and saying focus during meditation so that yeah there's 108 beads the number 108 is held to be the most auspicious a perfect three digit multiple of three it's components adding up to nine which is three threes Three is the number representing supreme balance. Da, da, da. Being as this whole book is about my efforts to find balance, I decided to structure it like a Japa Mala, dividing my story into 108 tales or beads. Also, I'm just going to keep reading this part because I like this book. I think she's a good writer. Every Japa Mala has a special extra bead, the 109th bead, which dangles outside that balanced circle of 108 like a pendant. I used to think the 109th bead was an emergency spare, like the extra button on a fancy sweater or the youngest son in a royal family. But apparently, there is an even higher purpose. When your fingers reach this marker during prayer, you are meant to pause from your absorption and meditation and thank your teachers. So here, at my own 109th bead, I pause before I even begin. I offer thanks to all my teachers who have appeared before me this year in so many curious forms. Anyway, so of the 109 chapters, the medication stuff is like two. So it's not a big part of it. But I I think maybe just because the rest of the book was so likable that that really jumped out as like eh, what yeah it felt like of a time and maybe maybe it's i'm wrong about that but there were a few things that jumped out as being like huh i wonder with the conversations we have now if she would think that and i mean i thought about what what this journey would look like now a lot like what if i i am not the kind of person who goes to italy and says you know what i'm gonna say i'm not gonna have sex i'm not gonna have sex all year i'm gonna be celibate i'm gonna take myself because like it is really easy for me not to have sex. Like, on a, like no, uh-huh. one has, no one has ever come up to me when I've traveled and been like, you know what we need to do, you and I. It's just not, you know, so nor is it difficult for me to be out of dating. I'm really good at, at, at that. So I was laughing about, whereas my sister might have the opposite uh, reaction where she would have to call off, she would have to 
create a moratorium, whereas my moratorium comes to me so naturally, usually. So I was thinking, what if this character had Tinder? Right. What if this character had all of these ways that connected her to the world around her in different ways, where the friendship she makes her require of her extroversion? All It's just so fascinating to read it because social media is not a part of it. Yeah, I was thinking about her ability to be present. Like she's clearly someone who is talks about managing anxiety and self worth. If I got a book advance to do what she did, I would spend 80% of the time being like, I cannot blow it with this book. (laughs) I'm freaking out about the material I have for the book. And is this going to result in anything? And am I going to please the publisher? And for all of her talk about people pleasing and conforming to make a partner happy and all of this stuff. I actually think it's some of the environment at that time that allows her to disconnect. If if she had been on social media all day, would she have had the experience she had? And that's, that's one thing I really took from the book is like, what if we traveled in this way, meaning completely disconnected from, you know, home is an email away, but not a scroll away. Yeah, that's it's something I think about a lot in terms of like my own travels. Like I studied abroad. I spent a semester in England in 2005. And that was a time when I was using a phone card from a landline in our flat to call home. Like I didn't have a cell phone then. We didn't even have internet in our apartment. We just like went to campus to use it or internet cafes. And then when I was in Peace Corps, it was 2008 to 2010 And so there was internet. You had to go to cafes in town or like in the city to use it. And it was really patchy. And so like we would send home our mass emails and just thinking like even a few years after we left, we heard from volunteers that like they had like iPhones when they were in Peace Corps. And it's just it's hard to talk about without feeling like a crotchety old lady of like, are you getting the most out of the experience if you have that? And because I know that like, you know, I'm on my phone all the time in life here and you can make those connections online, but there is something to be said for sometimes going offline. I will say when I most recently was in Iceland, we could not get our phone carrier to activate our international, like we supposedly, according to our phone carrier, we should have been able to use our phone in Iceland, but we couldn't get that international bit to activate properly on our phones. So I did basically just like my phone essentially acted as a camera for the entire time I was in Iceland, which was kind of nice. Yeah, you self-actualized. Yeah, by Sprint's shitty customer service. If we don't have anything else to say about eat, we should move on to pray. I think. Yeah. And like back to pray and pray, I think maybe is the section that in some ways I'm the, like the least equipped to talk about. Although of the three countries I have been to India, but I don't know anything about like ashrams or like what she talks about. But I think this is a section where when we talk about cultural appropriation, like I really think that she is so sincere about this and so careful about this. And it's so important to her. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be cultural appropriation. But like, to me, cultural appropriation is so much more egregious when it's something like, you know, urban outfitters selling Navajo patterns and, you know, not crediting the the artists of those designs. It's so much more like nakedly capitalist. And like, certainly, I'm sure she made a lot of money from this book and from the movie but I don't think she was like, ha, I'm going to like go spend four months praying and I'm going to make bank from it. 
And I think she's very careful. Like she, well, I'm still on the page, so I'll quote it. I would like to clarify that I write about my experiences in India purely from a personal standpoint and not as a theological scholar or as anybody's official spokesperson. This is why I will not be using my guru's name throughout this book because I cannot speak for her. Her teachings speak best for themselves, nor will I reveal either the name or location of her ashram, thereby sparing that fine institution publicity, which it may have neither the interest in nor the resources for managing. You know, like, I feel like a more cynical bitch could be like, and now here's my Eat, Pray, Love tour. And like, I'm going to be selling tickets for the cruise, like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's yeah. It, to me, to me. And again, like, I'm, y'all know, listening to this, like, I'm a middle class white lady. But I feel like the movie made it seem like cultural appropriation that she, you know, saw this picture of a guru in her boyfriend's apartment. It seemed so exotic. And it seemed like the answer to her problems to learn how to like meditate and be spiritual. Whereas in the book, like it's very clear that the meditation practice itself is what appealed to her. And that she like was a serious student of this guru and a serious student of this study. And that her intention was not like, oh, like my life is in upheaval. So I'm going to go to India and like, I'll learn what it truly means to be centered and balanced. To her, this was something like a pilgrimage to this ashram from her guru, who she had been making a serious study under for, you know, multiple years at this point, uh, and wanted to learn how to better a practice which she had already embraced. Like... That to me feels like that's not cultural appropriation. It's in something I feel like you pour years and months and hours and days of study into, Mm -hmm. you know, like obviously there's going to be as a white lady coming into this, it's going to be different, but it also, it's not like, it's not like she's a tourist. This was you know, part of, I don't want to use the term organization, but this was an extension of something of which she was a serious student. You know, I can't speak to like, obviously, I know so little about what she speaks of, but I think the part that appealed to me about it in a way that surprised me, because I fully expected to snooze during the prey section. And I keep thinking about, I think it was on the Mindy project that Mindy Kaling has a line about eat, pray, love and says, oh, like, do I have to pray? Like the other two parts seem far more interesting. But mm-hmm. I think it's a relationship to religion and spirituality in general that had me thinking. And I am not a religious person, and I am a secular Jewish person who was not raised with any immediate understanding of religion. Like, I never went to Hebrew school. I wasn't bat mitzvahed. So, and some of my family knows a ton more and and is more observant, but it is always like this annoying thing that I have to show up for, and I'm like, when can we eat? Like, at a holiday. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> and I think one of the parts I really liked was that she talks about rituals and, you know, whether it be a funeral or, you know, these moments where there's repetition in spiritual practice and holidays, like like moments to mark an occasion. And she talks about it in, in relation to feelings. Like if we don't have these moments, we have to carry these feelings, whether it be grief or anything else. We have, to, we have to sort of acknowledge them all the time. And this allows a moment to say whether, you know, we're going to take this beat of, of marriage, right, for joy. And we're going to take this funeral for grief. And I, she doesn't say it, it like that. But what she does talk about is the practice of, of giving yourself space to have these thoughts and feelings 
And that, that was a part that I felt was very meaningful. And now I'm sort of blanking on which exact moment it was in, but just you're not going to get rid of all these uncomfortable feelings and bad memories and, and sadness, but, and it's always going to be there and you kind of have to live around it, but there are moments and sometimes moments through spirituality where you can acknowledge it. And I, I actually thought about that with Judaism and what I see my more religious family members do. And, oh, well, that's why there's a Shiva and that's why there's this and that. And it's, it, and it, what seems tedious and, and something like an obligation to me is actually designed for me to take a beat. And so I, I actually started thinking about it. Well, it doesn't really matter that she picked for her, it was this practice and this way of expressing spirituality that appealed to her. But for others, it might be something radically different, but it seemed universal. Just like, what are we trying to get from this? Yeah. Yeah. I will say it was my least favorite part of the three parts, but I did enjoy it more than I was expecting going into it because it, it was, you know, I'm not a spiritual person. Sometimes I think I appreciate people who are spiritual and people who do take comfort in some sort of faith or ritual or repetition, but it's something that's hard for me to conceptualize for myself. Yeah. You know, it, it's not, I was raised, I was raised Catholic and I was a good Catholic in that I, you know, went to Sunday school, uh, CCD, catechism classes every week from like kindergarten or first grade until I was confirmed in the 10th grade. Like I was considered a good student there. I, you know, went to church with my family until I was confirmed because that was the kind of rule that we had that once we were confirmed and we were seen as adults in the church, we could decide whether or not we wanted to continue to go to mass. But I I never felt a comfort in it. I never had any faith or belief. But there also wasn't like I know folks who were raised religious who don't believe in God who found comfort in the ritual and the repetition. And that for me just never really pinged. So from a, I guess, like, outside perspective, hearing how someone creates, finds this faith and this spirituality within themselves, and creates this practice was much more interesting than I was expecting it to be, I guess is what yes. I was trying to say. Yes. And I think this is the section that's hardest to translate to film, because so much of it is just her writing about like hours of meditation and what that feels like and what she's deriving from it. And like, it's, you know, Julia Roberts is lovely to look at, but what are you going to do? Just show her sitting cross-legged eyes shut. Like it, it does rely on some good voiceover parts from the book, but it's just, it's not an easy thing to translate to film. It simplified it too much. It, the book is better. It is. <laughs> in conclusion. Is. In this in this particular part, especially. Anything else to say about prey? No, but I'm excited to talk about love because I had weird fe feelings about that section more so than I thought. Like I, I did like re reading, maybe because it was so inaccessible to me, the, the prey part. I just thought I was like, this is going to be a slog. And then it wasn't. And then the love part, it is this funny thing where it does feel like she's done all this homework in her part two of her journey. And then she gets to Bali and is like, kind of like, I'm a little, there's this feeling of, of a, being with a different kind of person. It's interesting too, because, you know, obviously eat, pray, love is this like catchy little like title and there's eat section, pray section, love section and love. Like you think it's going to be like, Oh, this man that she marries, but it's also like love for herself. But then a lot of it is about just like, 
her loving friendship with this woman, Wayan, 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 this like loving but kind of like messy friendship there. Like it encapsulates a lot into four months in Bali, which, by the way, first of all, I think I can't remember if we were recording when we talked about her getting there without a visa. That part made me die. Like I died and I came back to life and I'm like a ghost now because of the way that I like to travel with my little spreadsheet and my plan. And I've like, Oh my God. Like she, she got there. She didn't do any research. She was just like, yeah, I'll figure out when I get there. And then she gets there and they're like, Oh, you can only have a one month tourist visa. And she's like, no, I need to stay there for four months. And they're like, no. And she had a book deal. Like, like I, the level of anxiety I had when reading that part, I was like, you are, you have a contract book deal, which you have not mentioned in a while. They think you're going to live here for four months and you didn't check the visa status you needed. It was wild. So stressed. The only country I've traveled to that I had to get a visa for was India. And I don't know if you've never gotten a visa before. It's like stressful. You have to like send your passport in the mail. You're like physically without your passport for a while because they have to like physically do it there and then send it back to you. And it's just like, well, what if it gets lost in the mail? What if it doesn't come back in time? What if they like eat my passport and I never get it back and I I can never leave the country again? Like, and maybe some of that is irrational anxiety spiraling that, you know, maybe is why I'm on Lexapro now. But nevertheless, <laughs> like, my God. And for her to just be like, oh, do, 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 here I am. And some of that definitely is like white lady privilege where, spoiler, then she ends up figuring out how she can like bribe somebody to extend her visa. And it's like actually not a problem at all. But my God, it could have been. <laughs> yeah, we were. I don't even remember where we were the other night. And Renata was like, where are you in the book? And I was like halfway through Prey. And she's like, oh, my God, I this is a spoiler. But I just have to tell you about something that happens in love that has stressed me out so much. Yeah. I was so glad you had that reaction because it was the only time that I had an out loud reaction where I think I yelled no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> that was an interesting way to start out in that section. And it, the other thing that I thought was interesting too is that she really delves into the history of Indonesia and of Bali specifically. Yeah. Yeah, and I didn't know any of this. It was really interesting. I didn't either. You know, because she starts off by saying, like, Bali is considered a utopia, and it's like, everyone thinks of it as, like, this paradise where, you know, a lot of, like, the stressors of the world have never affected the people here. And after my first trip, like, even I was guilty of telling people that, but actually, like, Bali has, like, a really violent and terrible history, and there's a lot of, like civil disruption that you know tourists and even people who are staying there for like longer term don't necessarily know about and she really delved into the politics of it all which i wasn't necessarily expecting i think too like with the eat pray love catchy title and even i've been doing it like i texted my group chat earlier and i was like okay well i've eat eaten prayed and loved and now i just have to record in a couple hours and i'll be like officially on vacation and because i'm off for work this week that we're recording it. And I think trying to add the love, like she doesn't even meet the guy who she ends up marrying. Who's like the love portion of it to like halfway through. And like Renata says, there are like, it's also a lot about like herself and like relationships she makes in the community. But I think it's really presented culturally and even through the title and through the movie as like, 
And now that I'm a better person, I'm ready to fall in love again. And while it is a little bit that, like she does acknowledge that it's only all the work that she's been doing on herself that make her ready to be in a relationship again without falling into all the same habits that she falls into. Mm-hmm. So little of it is actually about that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where I was going with this, actually. No, <laughs> I think I think you expect the love chapter to be about falling in love. And it, I, I think maybe it's supposed to be more about loving yourself and that kind of thing, because yes, she does meet someone she falls in love with. She has to forgive herself for that or, or, or allow herself to do that. I mean, my, my favorite moment in one of my favorite moments in the book is when she sort of comes clean about not being unpartnered since she was like, what, like 15 or something that yeah. she had a, mm-hmm. you know, a boyfriend of some kind basically forever. And the fact that, you know, she really wants to get through the year, I think, without that at first and to see who she is. And, you know, as a, again, as a more monumentally not partnered person through most of my life, you're kind of like, oh, well, that's the only way you can know yourself. And but but then, you know, that's not necessarily true either. So I liked the idea of her being like, well, what if I didn't set that rule for myself? Like, you know, she's very different when she approaches this relationship. And you know, we sort of leave it as uh, this could be nice. I do have a note on the very end of the book. But yeah, it seems to be more about, well, now that I've done eight months of self-study, how can I put it to practice? And it just sort of happens to be that she's in Bali. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's I think, too, this is also an issue with the movie. I mean, I don't want to spend this whole time talking about the movie in a derogatory way, but like the movie, of course, cause it's a movie like her falling in love is a like much more tempestuous and, you know, he's in love with her, but he says those words and she re- rejects him because no, like she's not going to do this. And it's going to be, whereas like the movie ends with him being like, well, you know, go back to America, but you'll never know what we could have had. And her dramatically, instead of going to the airport, like going to see him, him. whereas like in real life according to the book like she was like i don't want to be in a relationship and he was like okay i respect that but here's my counterpoint we clearly have feelings for each other and i think we should and she's like mm, i'll think about it and then the next day she's like yeah like let's do it and that's it also the movie generated this meet cute where he hits her with his car which did not happen yeah the movie yes. really got movied up and even her relationship you know, there was a plot line in the Bali part where she raises money for this friend to buy property. And in the movie, it really rubbed me the wrong way. And in the book, the nuance of it and how that gift is received is like so much more complicated and interesting and sometimes awkward and unpleasant to read. But it, it was, I was like, wow, they really like took the nuts and bolts of this and threw it in the movie. But I think the casting for the movie must've been really interesting. Cause when you think about the roles, the men play, they're not in that much because, you know, you could have got ex-husband, ex-boyfriend and possible love. And yet you want these names to be big. And so it's interesting to see how much space they actually get in the book. Yeah, the raising money thing too, like, because I felt similarly in the movie, it comes off as really white savory. Oh, as ever, yeah. Yeah, it's this healer woman in the village who is divorced and in Indonesia, she has had like a lot of issues with telling people she's divorced. So she just lies and says she's never been married. But then she meets this healer woman and the woman 
is like, oh, I also am divorced. I can tell you're divorced. Like, it was really hard. Like, she gave up literally all of her assets to pay for a lawyer to get custody of her daughter. Because culturally, by default, the, the man would get custody, even though he didn't, like, really want the daughter. And the friend's name is, is Wayan. That's who I was mentioning before. Yeah. Like, she takes in two orphans. Like, she's a really good member of the community. She's really cool to Liz. She's a really interesting person in her own right. Yeah, so funny whenever Liz is, like, talking about conversations they're having. But because she had to use all of her assets to get her daughter back like she can't make enough money to like put down solid roots like anytime her landlord of where her shop at the time is raises her rent like she essentially has to find somewhere new to go so she can't really build up a following because she doesn't have like a permanent location she can't be featured in any like lonely planet guides or anything like that because she doesn't have like a a permanent location for her business and so liz for her birthday emails all her friends and says like listen like this woman who i've met is going to like lose her shop location and her home and you know my birthday's coming up and normally like i'd throw a big party and i'd make you all come because it's her 35th birthday too so it's like a big number and you know you'd be forced to like buy me a bottle of wine or like you know spend money on like a new outfit or whatever to come so instead of doing that like could you just please donate to help me get a home for this woman and her kids and i listening to the book i cried through the whole thing but once she gets the money like wyan and her daughter are very excited but also it's not like it becomes clear to liz as time goes on that like wyan isn't buying a new home and she starts to get really afraid she's being bullshitted and but also doesn't know how to bring that up with her and it's like this like weird, awkward social place that she has put herself because mm-hmm. she doesn't want to go back home and have her friends say like, oh, like what happened to like the struggling single mother with three children? Like and say like, uh, actually, I don't know. So she wants to have like something she can tell people who donated their money, but also like she doesn't necessarily want to call the struggling single mother a bullshitter. You know what? Hang on. I was going to do this for my dramatic reading. I'm just going to drop it in now because I feel like that makes more sense. And I'll read something else later because this book's great. So she's talking to Felipe, her love interest, about it. And Liz asks, is she fucking with me? He has not ever commented upon my business with Wayne, Not once. Darling, he says kindly, of course she's fucking with you. My heart drops into my guts with a splat. But not intentionally. You need to understand the thinking in Bali. It's a way of life here for people to try to get the most money they can get out of visitors. It's how everyone survives. So she's making up some stories now about the farmer. Darling, since when does the Balinese man need to talk to his wife before he can make a business deal? Listen, the guy is desperate to sell her a small parcel. He already said he would. But she wants the whole thing now. And she wants you to buy it for her. I cringe at this for two reasons. First of all, I hate to think this could be true of Wayan. Second, I hate the cultural implications under his speech. The whiff of colonial white man's burden stuff. The patronizing, this is what all these people are like argument. But Felipe isn't a colonialist. He's a Brazilian. Asterisk. He explains, listen, I grew up poor in South America. You think I don't understand the culture of this kind of poverty? 
You've given Wayan more money than she's ever seen in her life, and now she's thinking crazy. As far as she's concerned, you're her miracle benefactor, and this might be her last chance to ever get a break. So she wants to get all she can before you go. For God's sake, four months ago, the poor woman didn't have enough money to buy lunch for her child, and now she wants a hotel. And that that rang so true to me, and that's something that I experienced in Peace Corps and everybody in Peace Corps experience, and it's such a, like thorny fucking issue because and this is something that i see sometimes online and will drive me a little insane when people are like oh well like peace corps is just colonialist and like all like basically like all kinds of international aid of any sort is problematic and like Yes. And also, I think it's really complicated. And I think like when you are in these kinds of positions, like it just gets so hard to figure out how to navigate it and still like exist in the world as you understand it. Like, you know, if you as a volunteer, like get a new pair of shoes and give your old shoes to someone in your community, then everybody's like, oh, well, where are my shoes? And you're like, well, I only had the one extra shoes. And then it's like, fuck, now I can't, like, go outside without people asking me about shoes. And it's like, technically, you do have another pair of shoes. You have, like, your shoes that you're wearing. And then you could have no shoes. But it's like, you you still need to walk places. Like, I don't know where I'm going with this. But this, like, really, really, really hit me in a way of, like, there's so many problems. You can't solve all the problems. But maybe you can solve, like, one problem. And it's nice to solve a problem. It, yeah, I, I see what you're I think what the movie fails to do. And I think it's just this sort of cheesy moment of her walking in and saying, I raised all this money for you. And now you have a home. And it's like, thank you, Julia Roberts. And it feels icky. But it also feels like, well, I guess this character did raise the money. I think the nuance in the in the book really surprised me. And I thought just people's relationship to money, people's relationship to property, people's relationship to like the vibes of a property. You know, I, I think about my friends in the US and their relationship to home buying and what that looks like now, and that it's something that would never happen. And if it could happen, how it, it just felt like a much more realistic moment and just my my asterisk was going to be i she, she does do a thank you in the book to specific donors that i thought was quite fascinating or at the end at least in the version of the book i have there was like a list of people who donated yeah and one of them that i don't know if you really looked at the names i saw the name adam mckay and i was like wait adam mckay is in like the produ- like the person who made the big short and like the the fact that like we can now place these people in a community of people who are have had their own creative lives and yeah i saw that i saw two of my favorite ya authors the power couple justine larbelestier and uh scott westerfeld they yeah, donated I was with a lot of the names I was like were these people like loaded with money then like it was just interesting like who she thanks for these donations that you know long before some of these people were doing the things that we were while they were doing the things that we love they were also giving money to Elizabeth Gilbert for this person's house yeah but like overall I realize how long we've gone I liked I liked the book You know, I think she's a good writer. I think that looking at it not as like a self-help book, but as a memoir of like, Mm -hmm. this is what I did Mm -hmm. when my life got unbearable. And 
it helped me and maybe asking like she says in the intro that you were reading i listened to the audiobook it was so old that it does the thing where like at the end of each quote-unquote part of the audiobook it would say like end of disc seven beginning huh. disc eight like it was is an old version of the book so i didn't have the acknowledgments and i didn't have but the intro that you read was also not on it uh, where she talks about like, don't go the places I went, ask the questions I was asking. And I think that's really like, for her, for the person she was, for the career she had, for the life she had, asking those questions was something that she could do, could dissect and really dig into through shaking up her life by traveling. Like, there are probably other less expensive less intense ways to shake up your life to really dig into these questions and i i appreciated it i i liked it i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm a, I'm a middle class white lady and i liked this book yes i mean me too and it doesn't mean that there aren't a few cringy moments and more than a few cringy moments and certain people will react differently to it but it was also a portrait of a time to me i think mm-hmm. i'm always interested i mean they but, 9-11 looms large over this book. And I think a lot about how women write about marriage at different times. And I always am surprised to know, well, you know, this is also a time of life where I can't remember where we were in the sex and the city years, if we were there yet, but where are you coupled or not coupled as a straight woman in a time and place I think it became like a part of identity in a way that was super, like she is so self-punishing and also so obsessed with marriage and why she doesn't want this thing she's been told she should want and why she's bad at it and what this means. And then I know that she would go on to write about coupled, you know, being coupled, also feeling complicated. And so I, I, I like to sort of put a pin in like where this was, like, would it be different now? Would she be different now? Would a person at, 30, at 34, whatever age she is in her place, feel anywhere close to how she felt? It is funny, a little bit slash sad. She did this traveling in 2003 to 2004. And she talks about like, being embarrassed to be an American traveling under the bush years. And it's like, Oh honey, like you didn't even know, you didn't even know what it meant to be embarrassed to be an American. Oh yeah. It is definitely like of this time, but, but overall we liked it. And sorry, this episode wasn't more mean to Elizabeth Gilbert, but also not sorry. Cause that was our journey. And I'm sure we're going to be reading some dumb garbage soon that we'll make fun of. So don't worry about it. Um, yeah, let's move on to our dramatic readings. And I'm going to read a little bit more from the 10th anniversary introduction that apparently Kate didn't have, but I really like this part and related to it. So from, from this intro before we get into the rest of eat, which reminds me of a story that I did not tell in the original pages of eat, pray, love, but which I will tell now it happened when I was in Italy I was taking the train from Florence to Bologna. It's a quick ride, less than an hour. I shared a compartment with an exhausted young mother and her rambunctious toddler. I could see that the woman, much as she adored her child, was plumb worn out from traveling alone with him. But I was not worn out that day, and I found the child charming, so I jumped in to try to give her a chance to read her book in peace. For the duration of the train ride, the bambino and I played peekaboo, patty cake, and I've got your nose. We went through every object in my bag as though excavating an archaeological site. I let him scribble in my journal. 
and I allowed him to try on my sunglasses. We pointed to objects out the window, and I practiced my Italian nouns with him. At age two, and still a beginner in Italian himself, he was a perfect (laughs) conversation partner for me. It was a lovely encounter. When the train arrived in Bologna, I helped the woman disembark. She had all her own luggage to manage, plus a stroller, plus all her baby's gear. I carried the child out onto the platform while the woman got herself organized. Then we gave each other a kiss goodbye, and they went to catch their next train. I watched them walk away. This devoted young mother, who was around my age, and her gorgeous and impossible handful of a son. Then I turned around and walked in the opposite direction. A solo young woman, carrying only her backpack, ready to spend a few days in Bologna doing nothing but eating pasta and practicing her Italian. The sun was warm on my face. It was a beautiful day. I was deliriously happy. And that was the moment when I knew I would never have a child of my own. I could love children. I could delight in children. I could help other women take care of their children. But I would never have one myself. I was literally and emotionally heading in a different direction. I was going off to become something else in this world. I did not know yet what, but not a mother. It was a glorious moment. I don't know why I didn't write about this incident in the original version of Eat, Pray, Love. It seems terribly important to me now. I've forgotten so many details about that year of travel, but I've never forgotten that moment of realization and liberation on the platform of the Bologna train station. Maybe I didn't write about it because it felt too dangerous and subversive to speak publicly of that joy and that immense relief. Maybe I didn't trust my own revelation. Maybe I didn't trust my own sunlight. I honestly don't know. All I can say is, I trust it now. And just like as a dedicated cat mother, that really spoke to me. It is really interesting because I think that like now there's so much out there narratives about women who don't want kids. And and it doesn't seem subversive to me at all in 2022, but maybe that's my surroundings and what I read and what I consume and who I am. But I read that and I'm like, oh, like I, I have this like pity for the mother character who is you know, going to have to entertain her child for the rest of the time. But it's, that's really interesting, too, that it is really important in that moment, especially in terms of the narrative she's been told about what her life should be. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I still think, like, as a woman who works in, like, a child-adjacent profession, like, people still are like, when are you going to have, like, we are definitely not totally in a society where it's, like, totally 100% acceptable to be a child-free person by choice. No, it's true. I know I'm in a weird, um, and part of it is industry and, and you know, that I'm in where I, I am completely missing what what is probably a world that is like, what do you mean? And and also, I'm, I need to say, for the listener, I am 45. So at some point, people just stopped saying, are you sure you could change your mind? And I just, mm. I think what I attribute to, oh, wow, people really evolved and know there are many ways to have a full life and be happy. They just stopped asking because what they're really thinking is you better not change your mind, right? Um, <laughs> right. In fact, it's, it's not really about evolving. It's more that they're just like, we're going to stop asking her because we, we hope she doesn't change her mind. But whatever, it's nice not to be asked. <laughs> All right. I, uh, I'm going to do a dramatic reading about Liz's journey with her sister, Catherine coming to visit her in Europe and a little bit about their in Italy uh, and a little bit about their relationship. She arrives in Rome prepared as ever. She brings five guidebooks, all of which she has read already. And she has the city pre-mapped in her head. 
she was completely oriented before she even left Philadelphia. And this is a classic example of the differences between us. I'm the one who spent my first weeks in Rome wandering about, 90% lost and 100% happy, seeing everything around me as an unexplainable, beautiful mystery. But this is how the world kind of always looks to me. To my sister's eyes, there is nothing which cannot be explained if one has access to a proper reference library. This is a woman who keeps the Columbia Encyclopedia in her kitchen next to the cookbooks and reads it for pleasure. There's a game I like to play with my friends sometimes called Watch This. Whenever anybody's wondering about some obscure fact, for instance, who was St. Louis, I will say, watch this, and then pick up the nearest phone and dial my sister's number. Sometimes I'll catch her in the car, driving her kids home from school in the Volvo, and she will muse, St. Louis. Well, he was a hair shirt wearing French king, actually, which is interesting because... So my sister comes to visit me in Rome, in my new city, and then shows it to me. This is Rome, Catherine style, full of facts and dates and architecture that I do not see because my mind does not work in that way. The only thing I ever want to know about any place or any person is the story. This is the only thing I watch for, never for aesthetic details. Sophie came to my apartment a month after I'd moved into the place and said, nice pink bathroom. And this was the first time I'd noticed that it was indeed pink, bright pink from floor to ceiling, bright pink tile everywhere. I honestly hadn't seen it before, but my sister's trained eye picks up the Gothic or Romanesque or Byzantine features of a building, the pattern of the church floor, or the dim sketch of the unfinished fresco hidden behind the altar. She strides across Rome on her long legs. We used to call her Catherine of the three-foot-long femurs, and I hasten after her, as I have since toddlerhood, taking two eager steps to her every one. See, Liz, she says, see how they just slap that 19th century facade over the brickwork? I bet if we turn around the corner, we'll find... Yes, see, they did use the original Roman monoliths as supporting beams, probably because they didn't have the manpower to move them. Yes, I quite like the jumble cell quality of this basilica. Yeah, and I'll stop there. I could keep going because it's so interesting. Yeah, I love that part. Yeah, and just I overall find Catherine more relatable than Liz. Yeah, absolutely. And you already read the part about the casseroles, which is my other favorite part. Yeah, or I, I summarized. Yeah. Yes. Okay, well, I would like to read the part that gave Renata and I some absolutely big travel anxiety. This is where Liz mm-hmm. arrives in Bali. I've never had less of a plan in my life than I do upon arrival in Bali. In all my history of careless travels, this is the most carelessly I've ever landed any place. I don't know where I'm going to live. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what the exchange rate is. I don't know how to get a taxi at the airport or even where to ask that taxi to take me. Nobody is expecting my arrival. I have no friends in Indonesia or even friends of friends. And here's the problem about traveling with an out-of-date guidebook and then not reading it anyway. I didn't realize that I'm actually not allowed to stay in Indonesia for four months, even if I want to. I find this out only upon entry into the country. Turns out I'm allowed only a one-month tourist visa. It hadn't occurred to me that the Indonesian government would be anything less than delighted to host me in their country for just as long as I please to stay. As the nice immigration official is stamping my passport with permission to stay in Bali for only in exactly 30 days, I ask him if, in my most friendly manner if I can please remain longer. No, he says. In his most friendly manner... The Balinese are famously friendly. See, I'm supposed to stay here for three or four months, I tell him. I don't mention that it is a prophecy that me staying here for three or four months was 
predicated two years ago by an elderly and quite possibly demented Balinese medicine man during a 10 minute palm reading. I'm not sure how to explain this. And this is like the only reason this didn't send me throwing the book across the room is because she seems to know what this sounds like. I know I'm this white woman showing up in this place where someone will help me. Yeah. But we kind of already talked about it. So, but it's also like, (laughs) what, what did, you know, talk about armchair travel. I just, I couldn't, would never be me, but no, but yes, a way to kick off after a lot of praying. Yeah. Yes. (sighs) Okay. Um, let's move on to reader's advisory where we can suggest some books to read instead of, or in addition to, this one and again honestly we all kind of like this one so maybe check it out but if you didn't like it i don't want to hear about it (laughs) yeah don't ask i mean one thing i will say is that i you know i like to read travel books it is a very white segment of publishing generally so a couple travel narratives written by people of color that i have liked are an indian among los indigenas by ursula pike who's a native american woman who goes and does peace corps in bolivia which is i really liked it i found a lot of it very relatable as a former peace corps volunteer but then also a different perspective obviously and then the catch me if you can by jessica nambongo who's the first black american woman to visit every country in the world incredible how about you guys this is really outside of my like preferred genre. So I don't necessarily know that I have anything. I don't read a ton of memoirs. I don't read a ton of travel books. I don't read a ton of self-help books. Not that I would characterize this as such as already discussed. But Meredith, what do you, what do you have? Well, I, the, the first book that comes up for me, which falls into this genre in a different way, is Under the Tuscan Sun, also adapted mm-hmm. as, into film, a film I absolutely love. I don't know how well it holds up, but the, the, whatever age I saw, I was when I saw it, I, I loved it. But it goes for the, you know, if you think about this book as a breakup fantasy story, because for most of us, this kind of travel would be fantasy, but I need to find myself after suffering great loss in my love life. Uh, Under the Tuscan Sun, it does that, right? It's like, what if I just quit and moved and started? I mean, it's really like a, a COVID fantasy of like, well, now that I can work mm. remotely, maybe I should, you know, go to Tuscany and, and start a new life. And it, it is really from the perspective more of someone who has been left as opposed to someone who leaves. But there's a lot of like solid crying and misery and then rebuilding. But it's another sort of, you know, armchair travel book. I, I do think wild by Cheryl Strait. And, and I also mm-hmm. wanted to, I'm going to self plug here because I was very concerned when the globe, my employer said to me, we want to sell a memoir based on your writing and advice column and about your life. And I was like, my first thing I said was, okay, you know, my mom had just died. That makes me like Cheryl Strait. I write an advice column that makes me like Cheryl Strait. I am a white lady of a certain mm-hmm. age who's trying to find myself, which makes me like all of these people. But unlike these people, I haven't gone anywhere, hiked anything, moved my body. I've been watching Twilight over and over for (laughs) several years and just really want to sit on my rear end and try to figure it out. And I wasn't quite sure there was a book in that. And I figured out that there was, but it it is probably more self-consciously written because I was writing it after books like this were out there. Mm -hmm. But 
I have no idea whether it succeeds or is even a part of this genre because I think it's far more about being an advice columnist and maybe more on the, you know, also caretaking side. But um, there was something very important to me about Liz Gilbert saying in the introduction for the tenure that she has not gone back and read this book really since then. And I have not read my own memoir, but I imagine there are some absolutely cringeworthy moments or, you know, uh, it is of a time also. But I think it's interesting to think about these single women characters. I, I was really worried publishing was sort of like, write this because you could be like these people. And I like couldn't squeeze it out in that way. I loved your memoir, Meredith. And and I'm not just saying that because I mean, you're you on the have podcast. To say that like, I, here, but no, but I mean, I, I wasn't fishing for compliments, but it is a difficult thing because I think having read some of these books when they came out or, or knowing they existed, and I really waited to read Cheryl Strayed because my mom was sick and I was like, I don't want to read this memoir by a woman whose mom died. Like, I didn't want to know what this was going to feel like and this this kind of stuff. You're just like trying not to step in it. and. Yeah. We have read and loved and recommended your memoir before, and I do think that it is it is uh, worthy of being held up among these other ones here. There's no praying. There's no praying. <laughs> there's, there's definitely loving, more of like a love yourself, love exes, love friends, love family. And there is, I don't even know how much I talk about eating, but there is also um, Twilight. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, your your memoir is titled Can't Help Myself. And we'll have that and some other recommendations up on our website, worstbestsellers.com. And now we will move on to The Rock Paper Snicked, the game where Kate says who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book. And I'll say who Wolverine would be if he were in this book. And Meredith can choose which most enhances the book. Or she can choose paper, which is to leave it as is. Okay. Because I liked this book. I think that if Dwayne The Rock Johnson were in this book, he would be uh, hanging out in Bali with some of the friends that Liz meets there and just kind of just kind of chilling, just vibing with her and Felipe, who is the gentleman who she ends up forming a relationship with and Wyatt and the other folks that they kind of hang out with there in Bali, all the expats that kind of chill together. And, you know, he would give her some really solid advice about having, you know, found herself and forming relationships and, you know, it'd be all about vibes. <laughs> the book wouldn't really change that much. <laughs> yeah. If Wolverine were in this book, it also wouldn't change that much, but he would join her for dinner in Italy and just eat a bunch of meatballs directly off of his claws, which I always think is like very funny when Wolverine eats straight off of his claws like kebabs. And I think Liz would enjoy that sight as well. And it would really inspire her to connect with her animal instincts, which, you know, we could we could all stand to do from time to time. So I want to applaud both of these options. I'm going to go with The Rock because, mm -hmm. and I have a reason. It's because when I knew this segment was coming, I really begin to imagine both The Rock and Wolverine as Felipe. Like, what if instead of Felipe, <laughs> love came in the form of Liz Gilbert falling in love with one or the other? And I think yeah. because that Rock story is the Rock story is closest to that, where he's just at the bar. But I imagine, like, wow, what a twist ending that now she's betrothed to Wolverine or The Rock. So, yeah, I, I like the idea of him sort of being there and, and you know, maybe more. Yeah. I support that. And, you know, and even if he didn't win, we all did get to take a moment to just think about Wolverine eating meatballs off of his claws. And that really makes us all winners anyway. Incredible. Very true. Incredible thought. 
And so now it's time for Duarte's Corner, where my cat Duarte will share his stories about the book. Yeah, Duarte, like, she does mention sometimes, like, street animals. She doesn't really seriously address the possibility of finding a cat in the garbage and taking him home, which is, of course, the number one best thing to do when you travel somewhere. But, you know, we've said before, it's not a prescriptive book. She's It's not totally a life guide. It's just, like, her journey. Yeah, plus, you know, I think that while it would be really cool if she had, like, an animal companion while she was traveling, that just also seems like so much work for the animal. Like, you have to get used to all these new environments, and, like, you can't just nap in the sunlight all day. So I I really think that it was probably best for the cats of the world and for Liz that they – that she did not bring a cat with her on her travels. And, like, she's not out here doing visa paperwork. She probably wouldn't have been able to do, like, the animal acquirement – paperwork so a lot of moving around yeah yeah but i mean you are right though it is it is great to to find cats and bring them home like just i recommend it (laughs) personally um do any humans have any closing thoughts not really you know i think i've made it clear that i enjoyed this one yeah sometimes it's nice to like revisit a time also and and i think sometimes because I'm going to bring up the social media thing again and just talk about how nice it was to read a memoir that talked about the world without interruptions in that way. Like it, it made me, it inspired me to think about how I look at things or don't look at things. Yeah. And just sometimes books are bestsellers because they're pretty good. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of social media, if you want to come talk to us on that, we are on Facebook and Instagram at worst bestsellers spelled normally. Uh, assuming Twitter still exists when this episode goes up, we're on there at Worst Bestseller with no S. I don't know. Don't talk to us about Mastodon. Don't just those where we are. Those are the things. We're available on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. And if you do find us on there, you should take a moment to subscribe and rate and review when you rate and review it moves us up on the charts and makes it easier for new people to find us if you don't rate and review then you know we'll probably give you a pretty nasty review when we write our really excellent dual memoir eight prayed loved and you know you'll you'll have to deal with that we also have a Patreon available at patreon.com slash worstbestsellers. Patreon is a service where you provide a small monthly recurring donation that goes to us to do things like keep our website going, uh, keep our equipment updated, and uh, pay to commission artists to design things for us. And in return, you get perks like a newsletter that comes out monthly or a postcard in the mail or stickers or any number of other things that you can find at patreon.com slash worstbestsellers. Additionally, you, you can vote on books for us to read such yes as this one. like this one and thanks again to all of our beloved patrons for choosing a book we liked actually sorry if this wasn't exactly what you were expecting when you chose it but we do also have merch available at our new t public store uh, which you can find by going to worstbestsellers.com and clicking on merch and we have some great designs on there from new artists and some beloved classic favorites and with the holidays coming up there's pretty much always a discount over on Teed Public so why not give the gift of merch for your favorite podcast to your friends and family this season I was so stressed about Mastodon that I forgot to say why there's no S in our Twitter name and I just want to say it's because of Elon Musk he took it And that's just one more thing he's done wrong. Okay. 
I'm glad you got that in there. People comment on the S thing, and I just really I wanted to get it out there. Okay. Um, you don't know because you're not on Twitter. People at me about it. Oh, I'm sorry. No, not in a bad way. Like, but they would if I skipped it. Oh, okay. That's all Um, I'm saying. You're being. I don't like this tone, Caitlin. finish what you were saying while i sulk about this okay we have a discord server and you can find it on worstbestsellers.com and you can come in and tell me off for being dismissive of Renata's concerns about the s on twitter thank you uh if you want to find well i guess i'm now i'm all messed up and i'm doing it out of order renata go yes it's well it's elon Musk's fault again <laughs> but i'm on social media is at renata snacks and i'm on social media at 14 across and meredith where can people find you i'm either under meredith goldstein or meredith goldsta up to the e um on whatever social media i have not rejected and i just i really mm-hmm. want to encourage anyone who listens to photoshop a cover of eat pray love that instead says rock paper stick you know i think those i think that could be the memoir for the two of you and that with the little claws you know maybe like a an eye that's sort of a row that's raised i could really see the three you know just tonic images yeah I thought you were going to say ate, prayed, love. And I also think that would be better because she ate. She did. Yeah, she did. (laughs) Uh, Marina, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thanks for putting up with my illness. And I hope that the cold medication really just enhanced the experience for all of you. Yeah. 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 Um, And, you know, and if you have questions about, loving not so much eating or praying but you can ask meredith your questions about loving for the love letters yes just go to boston.com slash love letters definitely don't ask me about praying i can't figure it out <laughs> i'm gonna i'm in a com called eat letters <laughs> uh and i'll eat your letters yes. uh, uh and we will we, have the, we have the podcast renata and i alone we'll be back in two weeks with our best and worsts of 2022 Oh my gosh. Uh, the year is almost over. We're already losing it. Thanks again, Patreon patrons for this. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, Meredith. Thanks, Liz Gilbert, for writing a pretty good book. And bye. Bye. Before I commit to reading it, how do you pronounce the Italian city that looks like a baloney? Do you say Bologna? How do you say it? Okay, let me Google this. I do not want to embarrass myself.